Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in beautiful Austin, Texas. And on today's podcast, we're going to take a look into the origin story of A Voice from the Hills. You know, when we first started doing the podcast, I reached out to a lot of people I respected to get some input. And the advice I received over and over again is that Voice from the Hills needs an origin story. But how do you do that now that we're almost 40 episodes in? I can't tell the story alone, but thankfully, we have some of the best guests any podcast could hope to have. They tell the story in every episode, so it makes perfect sense that the Voice from the Hills origin story is best told through our guests. So here it is, our reason for being, our value proposition, explained by yours truly and amplified by some of our favorite guests. Hope you enjoy the listen. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. You know, as we were prepping to do the uh, Voice from the Hills origin story, I went back to my old notes to see what what did we have in mind when we got this thing started in the first place. Goals were simply to introduce our audience to the best and brightest talents in our industry, to share some of the conversations that we have, and to have access to their unique capabilities and perspectives. And in doing so, we want to use that insight of our guests to help our audience build their business, build and manage their wealth and help cement their lifelong impact. And of course, in order to do that, we all have to address the fundamental challenges that we all confront. As we thought about the different challenges that we all face, we went back through the archives, listened to some of the pods, and really developed kind of a formula based on our own guest feedback, more of a roadmap than anything else, to overcome those challenges. And we put that together using just a small sample of our talented guests that we've been fortunate to share time with. And I think you're really going to enjoy the pod. Challenge number one, how do we go about building wealth and perpetual impact when our human behavioral limitations can serve as the largest obstacle to those goals? Brian Pointer reminds us that no matter how unique our situation, no matter how powerful we are on paper, we are all essentially human. Human is human. You know, we're born with different dispositions, different set points. And, you know, are you a cheerful person? Are you a gloomy person? You know, so those, you know, with I have three teenagers, so uh, I'm very much uh, in in the world of uh, team nature versus team nurture because these three kids are completely different from each other. And I think that Tracy and I treated them all the same. Um. Yeah, I did. I did tweet about this the other day because you know we we're talking to um, we're not for everybody. Um, we're straight shooters, and we think that financial advisors have the opportunity to change people's lives for the better if they dig in and do the work and then apply it. So already we have had the privilege of talking to small shops and massive shops, and one thing that comes up a lot, especially with some of these bigger platforms, is that they represent DECA and CENTA millionaires and, and the occasional billionaire. And a comment is often made, and it's made, and I'm not, I really am not being uh, sort of pejorative or insulting here. Uh, they earnestly say our clients are different. They have $300 million. We're working on their dynasty trust. Um, there's tons of complexity given the nature of the business the patriarch built and got it. Like there's a lot of complexity. We have something easy and sometimes annoying, sometimes annoying to say to these folks when they tell us our, their clients are special, which is no, they're not. From a evolutionary psychology point of view, from an applied behavioral finance point of view, they are not the slightest bit special and treating them as special is a good way for you to undermine your value proposition. Daniel Crosby is a big proponent of setting up an environment that leads to sound decision-making. If we know our triggers, 
we can, on the one hand, institutionalize limited access to them to prevent ourselves from being triggered. But on the other hand, we also need a reliable support system to, as Daniel puts it, call us on our nonsense. Yeah, I think uh, most people refer to brains kind of in the lines of supercomputers. And I think in, in one of your works, you talked about that the human brain has much more in common with beer goggles than it does with a, a supercomputer. So, I, you know, I think there's at least at least three things that we need to do. And the first thing I think you just outlined there nicely, we need to understand that these are beer goggles, right? Like we need to understand that what comes easy to us is not necessarily what is good for us. So we need education, right? Is this this first piece we need? We need to understand how our brains work, how we're wired, our own personalities, such that we can perceive the world as it truly is and not just as it most sort of easily is to our minds. Uh, the second thing is we need to put ourselves in the right environments. You know, this is like something I pound the table on so hard. It's most people are about as bad or as good as their surroundings. And that's like really, really hard for us to get our minds around. But, you know, all of us are steps away from doing really horribly stupid stuff, evil stuff, stupid stuff, ill-advised stuff, if we put ourselves in the wrong environment. And then on the flip side, none of us are that far from greatness if we put ourselves in the right situations and surround ourselves with the right people. And so we're like water or, you know, we, we take on the shape of the vessel we're near, right? We, we take on the shape of the environment we've placed ourselves in. So I think that environment's really important. And then, you know, the, the last piece, you know, I call this my three E's and I, it, it works for life and it, it, it also works for, for financial markets, but it's education, environment and encouragement, right? Um, the last piece is we need people in our lives who will call us on our, on our nonsense. Denise Scholl fundamentally disagrees with the idea of separating emotion from logic. In her view, it's not only problematic and difficult, it's actually counterproductive. She coaches some of the best and brightest in our industry, high achievers, high earners, and counsels them to pay special attention to how a decision makes us feel. So I always say my clients come from, in the, excuse me, they come from two veins, either some problem, like behavior performance problem they can't solve. You know, I always do this thing. Or like just being a high performer, I just want to get better. I have hedge funds, I have long only, I have commodities traders. Um, there's this, I think of it as layered. Like what's their intuition? What's their sense of the right thing to do in markets? Which is coming from their experience and accumulated expertise. But they don't know how to trust it, right? Like, and they don't know. So I would just say like, what do you really think? I ask that I tell them to ask themselves, what do I emphasis on I really think? The point of that is to like remove the judgment. You don't want it to be, what does someone else think? Or what does someone else, what will someone else think about what I think? You just want to like be honest with what do I really think? Because people like actually don't answer that question. So anyway, that gives them kind of a sense of what they actually think, right? And then I ask them how much they believe it which is a measure of their conviction. And then it, it kind of derives into a predictive element too, right? It's not only what do I think right now, but what do I predict that I will feel based on this decision? You did your homework. Yes. Um, so the cutting edge of brain science is showing that number one, we're all, everything we do, everything we perceive is a prediction. Like you're listening to me, people will be listening to me, don't realize it, but you're predicting the next word that's going to come out of my mouth based on your knowledge of the English language, primarily a little bit of the knowledge of the subject matter. Even so the whole idea, all the things that we learn, like in psych one of one stimulus response, it's turning out it might not even be true. The second challenge we like to tackle on the pod is as an entrepreneur, how can I move forward through the disappointments? 
the roadblocks, the lack of funding to bring my solution to the masses? How can I stay true to the dream when it's all so difficult? And nobody brings this home more than Aaron Klein. When he talks about his world as a founder, he talks about all the hats that he had to wear to get started. Was it easy? No. Aaron relates his journey to the Apollo mission. Hey, I thought we would start the conversation not really at the beginning of uh, Risk Lies, but maybe uh, I think you refer to it as the year of successful failure. <laughs> uh, when you're on, you're on a plane ride back, I think from uh, a licensing deal that that didn't that didn't happen. Well, you know, when you start a company, you have dreams of um, everything is just going to work really, really well. Your 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 strategy is just going to unfold exactly the way you foresee it. And, um, you know, sometimes that happens, but I, I haven't experienced it yet. I flew to Baltimore because we're going to we're going to put a contract together and we're going to put a plan together to implement all of this. And in that meeting, uh, you know, basically they said, well, talk to us about your tech stack. And so we built a very modern tech technology stack. And they said, oh, we can't even talk to web services until we complete our technology transformation. We don't even you know, like we can't interoperate with that come back and talk to us in like six quarters. Um, and at the moment in time, I think we had like three months of money in the bank, right? you know? And uh, I, I was, I was pretty convinced that like we had hit the wall and we, we were kind of not going to work like it was not going to work. So I got back onto the plane in Baltimore and I pulled out my notebook and somewhere I've still got the notebook page where I wrote at the top the, what I call the Apollo 13 question, you know? Oh, yeah. and, and it's what do we do well here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do we have on the ship? What works? Good? What do we have on the ship? <laughs> good? Right. That's what Gene Cran said. You know, I don't. I don't care about what it was designed to do. I care about what it can do. And so, like, what do we have on the ship that's good? And the two things that I could write were great core technology, great risk technology, right, and two billion dollars worth of validation from the consumers, the E Trade guys that were using it, and. You know, it just kind of struck me like we we maybe we could go ahead and like um, I can't I went back and, and met with the team and I said, hey, you know, if we're going to go down, let's go down swinging. Next, we turn to Adam Holt, CEO of Asset Map. I was introduced to the technology well before I was introduced to Adam. But, whoa, I love this guy. I love his vision and I truly appreciate what he's built on behalf of others. In Adam's world, like so many other entrepreneurs, he took something that worked on an individual level and institutionalized and leverage it for the benefit of us all. The reason I created AssetMap was very much like, I think all invention, it's all necessity driven. I had com complicated clients. I came from an artistic background. I'd been a mind mapper forever, basically drawing visualizations of relationships. So that's how I kept my notes. I would draw these mind maps of clients' lives for myself on paper. Eventually it got so uh, illegible that I needed to buy a program to do it. So I used Visio, if you remember that back in the old days, like oh, sure. 2002, three, four. And uh, it was one of those moments when a client said to me, Hey, wh what's that? What's that drawing you have on the side of your desk there, which I was using for notes. I said, this is my asset map. I created for all my clients so I can keep your life in order. He said, you know, you could take your 80 page report and I want that. Don't come with that big report anymore. I just, well, let's talk about this map. And I realized it was transferable. So I, uh, you know, I basically started investing in, in building a framework and standard just for our firm. It wasn't until 2012 that we let other people use it. And then it literally went viral. And finally, we turned to the story of Perth Toll. She crossed multiple barriers at the same time. She changed the paradigm, left comfort for significance, took risk, both for potential profit and to make the investment world a better place. She shared her vision with us and what it took for her to make the leap. So this is an idea that pummeled me for a long time. I think it started really solidifying in my mind when I was gone on maternity leave from Fidelity, when I had the baby. And I wanted to do it then, but I still didn't know enough to, to know how to you know, start an index, how to do all, an ETF, all of this stuff. And I chickened out. And that was in California. And then I came back to Fidelity when we moved to Texas and went into the, the Houston branches here. And I was here for about a year when I realized, I was like, well, after you have a kid, it kind of makes you reevaluate your life decisions, right? <laughs> and I decided sure. that I, if I was going to be away from my child at work, it would have to be something that was like definitely what I felt was my purpose to do. And this 
was something that an idea that would not leave me alone. And it just kept popping up. And eventually I realized that I would rather fail at attempting to do this than than not try it. What advice would you give someone who has a similar dream to yours? They're in, maybe they're in a good career, but they've got something really special that they want to try. They've got their own unique set of personal obligations and limitations. What factors should they consider before they, you know, decide to leave what might be a comfortable environment for what might be one of more significance? Well, if you consider all the factors, you're never going to leave your comfortable, cushy job. So if I had considered all the factors, like the paycheck I was getting from Fidelity, the flexibility I had at work, my amazing team and my amazing clients, like I would have never left because it just doesn't make sense. Being an entrepreneur doesn't make sense from on paper at all. But once you have fire that you can't put out, nothing is going to stop you. Nothing's going to stand in your way. So there's really nothing I can say <laughs> to help someone take that leap or not. But what I can tell you is no matter who you are, even if you're a mom or, or you have all these other seemingly insurmountable obstacles, you will be equipped to do it if you were called to do it. So if that is what you decide is your purpose, you will find a way. The third challenge that we try to focus on here at A Voice from the Hills is now that I have my business up and running, how do I market that value? How do I communicate the value of what we do to the people that need it? Samantha Russell combines a fearlessness with an unmatched work ethic to produce massive amounts of content and engagement. But perhaps her superpower is looking at the world from a client-customer perspective. The messaging is so specific of who is a good fit for that business that by nature, it can't be everyone, right? So if your messaging calls out a certain type of occupation that you serve or a person with a certain amount of income or a person who has a specific problem in their life or they live in a certain part of the country, whatever it is, anyone that doesn't fit that mold is not going to be a good fit. But the people that find you who are in that classification are immediately going to be able to self-qualify. And good marketing, we want people to be able to self-qualify, right? There's such a shift in sales and marketing culture just in general over the years. And marketing now does a lot more of the selling for us than it ever could before just because of technology and and the way we can do things. But the messaging is crucial to get right. And so a way to test this, there's a couple different things you can do. I like to start with your website because that should be the hub and really the foundation of all of your other messaging. And there's something called the five-second test. So it's a test we use in marketing and user experience and design. And basically what you do is you get your laptop, your iPad, whatever, You pull up your website and you show somebody who doesn't know what you do. So a stranger at a coffee shop, you can go online. There's like usertesting.com and hire people by the hour to do it. But basically you show them your homepage for five seconds and then you close it and then you ask them a series of questions. So things like, what does this business do? What's this business all about? What do you remember seeing on the page? Who does this business serve? Who would be a good fit for this business? And if they get like 80% of it right, then you've done a good job, right? Because it's only five seconds. But if they're maybe only getting 20% of it right, or out of the 20 people you ask, only half of them have any clue, then you know you have your work cut out for you. So you want to be highly, highly specific in that key message of who you are, what you do, and who you do it for. Kelly Waltrick has demonstrated success across her entire career building brands, reshaping marketing operations, and building highly engaged and successful marketing teams from the ground up. She shares her unique perspective on the true power of marketing. You know, I always tell organizations, my whole career, I've told organizations that I've either worked with and intentionally or firms that I've been the CMO at or even firms that I've interviewed with that a good marketing leader or a good marketing function changes your whole entire business. It's making your product teams deliver things when they say they're going to deliver, um, that do what they say they're going to do. It makes your sales team accountable to converting the opportunities that are handed to them. It makes leaders, CEOs, accountable to being the thought leaders that the marketing team is saying that they're, they're being. So I really think that the right marketing leader at an organization, and this is, this is a big job to fill is essentially a catalyst for 
personal growth in the entire organization. Emily Bender is a key part of the Voice from the Hills origin story. As the founder of Wealth Voice, Emily sees a future where voice is a key driver for client engagement. She shares her vision for the future of communications and why every business should invest some thought and some capital into this growing market. If you look at the technology adoption curve of any new tech, there it's a bell, right? So you have your early adopters, early majority, and then you get into the late majority, and then it gets into the point where it's just quotidian, everyone has it, like an iPhone. There were the early adopters, and there weren't any good apps on it at the time. Um, I'll touch on that in a minute, but where we are with the voice thing, it is ubiquitous. It, it's the number one voice assistant, Alexa, but I mean, Google also has a lot of market share, and Siri, Siri has more market share on mobile versus in the smart home space. But there are over 50% of searches done by voice now. It was 30% was my stat I was saying for a while, and now it's even higher. So people are searching on voice. They're getting used to it. It's hands-free. And you'll start to see more and more devices that have that voice option. It doesn't have to be just voice. It's actually better when it's multimodal so that you can interact with touch, with voice. There's visuals. There's audio. Those analytics are great. I have a um, love-hate with podcast analytics because Looking at how many people listen to your show and seeing growth over time is good, but you don't want to get bogged down in that number where you get obsessed with it because then you start to create content to try to grow the show when really you should be creating content to deliver value. Whatever that topic is, it might not be a popular topic, but you'll, you'll run the risk of creating for the wrong reasons when you are driven purely by those metrics. And P.S., the data is good, but it's not perfect. It's, it's better than a Nielsen household data. Yes, this many people saw your commercial. None of that was accurate. We have a better idea of who's seeing what, but there's still, it's so polluted, you know, with bots, analytics are, they're not perfect either. And it's hard to try. This is especially the key. It's really hard to triangulate um, the, the whole funnel of all the impressions that you made on somebody, because there's something called the last click attribution model. Most analytics, Google analytics are kind of defaulted to that. So if someone comes to your website and what's the source of this click? Oh, organic search. Cool. Maybe they've been following me on Twitter for two years. It wasn't really an organic right. search out of the blue, but you won't know that from the data. So you just need to keep putting the content out, stay consistent, stay true to your message. Our fourth challenge is about operation. How do we incorporate the changing face of our customers into our operational plan? How do we incorporate new technology and tools into our process? How do we empower our team members to play a meaningful role in the day-to-day while also having some voice in the vision? And how do we bring those solutions together? Adam Singer gave us a masterclass in combining the concepts of operation and promotion. Few people have as much on-the-ground experience in building an online community as Adam. And he shares some wisdom on what companies should be doing, but also on what they might be doing all wrong. You know, there's a quote from David Foster Wallace of, you know, there's two fish swimming, swimming in a fishbowl and one fish says to the other fish, how's the water? And the fish replies, what the hell is water, right? (laughs) The point of that story, though, is a lot of these, a lot of bigger companies get trapped swimming in their, in their fishbowl, right? They're in their little bubble and they don't realize the world has changed around them, whether, you know, that manifests as, um, you know, still having a product that hasn't been modernized or, and that can mean a lot of things, right? So Dollar Shave Club, which basically shipped a D to C razor where they got so much traction that I think Gillette or PG&E, one of the big shaving companies had to buy them. The only thing that they did is offered recurring um, subscription-based shavers because guys, we don't remember to buy, you know, new razor blades. So that, they were basically just answering the market of what the market wanted. And I don't think that was a hard one to see that there should have been a D2C razor company. I think there's probably a whole handful of other D2C businesses that people could create that haven't been built yet. Um, I think that's a blue ocean, but I think that's one example of, you know, consumer preference. You probably could have seen a long time, Tim way. Uh, Jeff Bezos likes to say, I like they build for, um, what they know isn't going to change for the next 10 years or 20 years. Like they look at the world, they're like, what's not going to change? And one thing they saw was e-commerce. They're like, e-commerce isn't going to change. So instead of, you know, chasing their tails on 
social or blockchain or whatever other buzzwords of the day. They're like, we're just going to make our e-commerce experience awesome. Christian Schmidt, founder of RIO Oasis, is a true operational whisperer. She's able to translate the hopes and dreams of the C-suite to the team members that make it all happen, always with an eye on tailoring the user experience to the ultimate user. It is a myth that technology replaces people. Technology today actually makes you need more people. You need superheroes for each of these systems. You need a champion who's going to, going to oversee it, implement the updates, implement the integrations, recheck your processes, update your processes, right? Um, change things according to how the tech now works. And so we actually need more people. So it used to be, and I don't know who started the rumor, I would love to find them, but whoever started the rumor that once we get higher tech, my people have more efficiencies, absolutely. But those efficiencies does not eliminate a human patient. You talk about I, the importance of milestone celebrations and I, yes. within our industry, and, and of course we tend to all celebrate the same milestones. They're you know, AUM based or some, yeah. you know, some, some metric of growth. Uh, but you talk about doing it differently, not only with uh, the milestones that we celebrate with our clients, but also the milestones that we would celebrate within the firm. Yeah, um, our industry is so age-based, isn't it? Um, and usually we're celebrating an older age. <laughs> um, you're retiring your anniversary, your anniversary with us as a firm, your anniversary with a partner, which I think, to be truthful and frank, my dentist's office knows my birthday and sends me a postcard and an email. Like the people who rotate my tires know my birthday and I get an email. So I think that there's a milestone of relationship that needs to be identified based on those demographics I was telling you about, right? What's important to that client. Um, I think we see the same thing in human relationships, right? So I remember, you know, <laughs> There's a lot of guys who pull out all the stops on Valentine's Day, but most women would prefer you to do it on January 29th, not February 14th, right? So the just because milestones, I think, are really important because clients are feeling like a number. Um, they're feeling like advisors are trying to have meetings with them to check it off the list, not because those meetings are important, valuable, or impactful. So having milestones that are random sometimes encourages conversations with clients that open your eyes to other milestones they might be working towards. Penny Phillips has been a force in our industry from the jump. She has a clear vision on how an organization can grow, attract new talent, and build a culture around that talent to support the personal growth of each team member while providing the ultimate consumer with a meaningful experience. The first thing I would say is train yourself to be a relentless prospector, meaning every single conversation you have in a day with any key stakeholder, whether it's a family member, a client, a prospect, um, a center of influence, find a way to talk about, not about yourself or the business, but about the value you provide. In one way or another, in every single conversation, and practice it for a week, every single conversation you have with somebody on the phone or in person, find a way to weave in a story about how you've helped somebody, what you've learned over the last two years, you know, being in the pandemic and post-pandemic, a, a, a win that you've shared with a client or customer. Find a way to start building that confidence about consistently talking about what you do because the work and, and whatever you do is so impactful that you need to share it. I was coaching advisors and then consulting them on how to build businesses within the institution they were at and then leave and do their own thing. And I felt that many of the folks who'd gone through that process with me weren't happy at the end of it, meaning they were happy that they were building a bigger business and or were leaving a big institution to go out on their own and do their own thing. But what I found was that many of them wanted to get back to the discipline that the business was built on, meaning they wanted to get back to being an advisor. And I have heard this over and over from advisors who work with business owner clients, whether it's 
a medical professional who runs a medical practice or whether it's a tradesman who now, you know, runs a larger organization, sometimes there's this unhappiness or unfulfillment with running. I mean, operating a business is not easy. It's the most challenging thing. And so what I was finding was that advisors didn't really like operating the business or building it. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to have ownership, but they didn't want to actually operate it. And so their options were either to go out and hire somebody to operate it, hire like a CEO or CEO, which is a big spend, or join an organization that does that behind the scenes and allows them to be advisors, to be to do what they love doing, which is talking to people and selling and advising and delivering wealth management services. And so I said during the pandemic, I said, well, what if, what if I just build this? Our fifth challenge is all about change. How do we incorporate the new into the existing? How do we bring previously disenfranchised segments into worlds that restricted access to all but the most privileged in society? Nicole Kasperson is simply a fintech whisperer. Nobody's worked harder to build relationships within the industry while also challenging that same industry to use tech advancements for inclusion. And when you made the move away from traditional media, conventional reaction was, man, that's risky. You didn't see it that way at all, did you? Not, I mean, I, at the beginning I did. And I definitely think now, I mean, when I was thinking about the transition, right, it's, of course, it's, I mean, especially I'm a woman, right? Like we are inherently a bit more um, cautious uh, about changing jobs, about the risks of things, you know, more cautious of our stability. Um, so yeah, I, but I did get like, um, when it came to kind of like making the switch, I guess I, I, felt it was very, very odd that more a lot of people were telling me it was risky. It's like somewhat of a like backhanded compliment. But I guess I had to express to people that, you know, we are in the great reshuffle. We are in this like great resignation where people aren't going to work for a place that they don't feel valued or work at a place where the their passions aren't there um, or they aren't able to express them. So to me, and the media landscape is changing so much. To me, it would have been far riskier to stay. You don't have to... Um, have a huge platform to influence business decisions. You can work on your niche audiences. You can, you know, influencing just like one person and letting that trickle down. You know, I sit at the same dinner table as some really prominent people and I've never like worked at a major media brand in my life. Jake Northrup is part of a new wave of financial advisors that question the traditional paradigm of wealth management, work, save, sacrifice, retire, and then enjoy. Jake simply asked the question, if experiences are what we truly value, then why do we save them for last? Can't we build a financial plan that allows us to advance our career and our net worth while we prioritize those experiences? We have three clients that have done sabbaticals in the last 12 months, and all three of those are very different in terms of why they did it, um, how long they did it for, and the financial implications of those, right? Um, but generally speaking, you know, I like to define a sabbatical as just an extended period of time off away from work. It could be probably a minimum of a month and it could be even more than that. Right. Um, but I think the reasons why people do it are very different. Um, so one of our clients was, you know, we, it was the, what the article was about, um, you know, core focus for them was to take, you know, a trip around the world and just go hit all the different countries they wanted to go for 12 months, um, experience like all these things kind of together, right? Like they felt like we've been working a really long time. Um, We love to travel. And, you know, if time was shortened for us, right, you know, what would we want to prioritize? What would we do? And they talked about doing the sabbatical, right? So for them, you know, 12 months off traveling, that had a much, much different, you know, financial implication of it. They were looking at, you know, spending over $100,000. So the weight of those decisions behind that are a lot heavier um, compared to some of our uh, two other clients that, you know, they took a sabbatical and they were, you know, young families. um, And it was just like, I need a break. Right. You know, like I have young kids at home. I've been working and doing all this. And, you know, I just want to take some me time and and think about what's that next step in my career. And, you know, that didn't carry as much of a weight because they still had a partner that was still working. Um, They weren't saving as much. It was just kind of hitting pause on it. So, you know, I think doing a sabbatical or taking that for yourself, you can do it for different reasons. And there's different ways it impacts your financial life. And then there's Danny Fava. Danny has the pulse of technology advancement hardwired into her DNA. If there's a new app, she's on it. 
Embedded finance, she gets it. But for Danny, the ultimate dream isn't technology advancement for its own sake. The dream is that through advancement in technology, more and more diverse groups of people can build their financial literacy one decision at a time. We talk frequently about future-proofing. How do we future-proof our practices? Adoption and experimentation is number one. I think being open-minded is number two. Um, I really see the industry moving in sort of a different way than, than others might. I see a major decentralization of wealth happening because of all of these access points. So as I'm talking and building, right, I'm building even more access points. But as right. I'm talking and, and adopting these apps, I'm realizing the next generation, the generation that's starting to invest right now, their wealth is not going to be centralized. It is not going to be on one platform. It is no, I seriously doubt that anybody is going to want to consolidate their wealth to one or two central places. Think about our technology as an ecosystem with many different points of integration. We will bring it all together for the financial advisor so that the financial advisor can view and control those assets. The dream is to make the financial advisor the hero and that the financial advisor is the one who can bring it all together and make sense of it. Even though that wealth may have been accumulated in 18 different places and you know, the customer is not going to aggregate their wealth into one place or consolidate their wealth into one place. Investment really wants to make the advisor the superhero. And I think the superpower of an advisor in the future is the ability to bring it all together, to make sense of it, to be able to tell that client what's the next place they can put, what's the next best place they can put their next dollar and that place does not have to be a centralized view. It can be, you know, anywhere. And the advisor is always going to be able to bring it together and make sense of this decentralized world that we live in. Our challenge number six is how do we bring the products and strategies that were traditionally sequestered in the institutional and high net worth world to a broader audience? And largely, this isn't just a finance problem. This is a world problem. And if anyone has done more to advance the charitable planning landscape than Dr. Russell James, I'd love to have them on the pod. I can't find them, so I've had Dr. James on twice. Dr. James makes the complex simple. He provides a blueprint on how we can all be effective philanthropists. Here's some Hall of Fame advice from a Hall of Fame inductee and our only repeat guest on the pod. One of the gateway techniques that we utilize, and I think you refer to it really as a charitable swap, whereby you have a client that has a specific charitable intention. Maybe they want to give $100,000, and they actually have $100,000 in cash to give, but they also have $100,000 in appreciated assets. Can you talk through, when you mentioned the term charitable swap, if you were going to describe that to somebody in that situation, how that plays out and why that's important? Sure, absolutely. It's really the very first of all the techniques that is important for the advisor to understand. Uh, so very simple case, as you say, a person getting ready to write a check for $100,000. And we say, do you happen to have any appreciated securities that you might want to give instead? And the client says, well, yeah, I've got that shares of Apple stock, but I'm not really ready to sell those right now. I want to keep those in my portfolio. Actually, you don't have to change your portfolio at all. We just take those old shares of Apple stock that have all that gain in them. We give those to the charity. We use the cash that you are going to have given to the charity. And we immediately, at the same moment, in the same day, we purchase brand new shares of Apple stock. Now, you still have the same number of shares of Apple stock. It's just that you've wiped out all of the capital gain from those shares of stock in your portfolio. And because this is not lost property, we don't have to worry about the wash sale rule that would otherwise require us to wait a while before we repurchase those. In the past, this has been something that is a great way for donors, for clients to have their first experience with completely wiping out capital gains taxes. And in fact, from a financial planning perspective, 
every time you've got a client who has these appreciated assets, marketable securities, every time they write a check to charity, that's just losing tax opportunities. And lastly, challenge number seven, how can we rise up and overcome our own limitations to advance not only our own personal journey, but to challenge the status quo, lift up other people facing similar challenge, and provide a blueprint for success? No single guest embodies the ability to overcome challenge on the road to success more than Dr. David Roney. You can hear David's story on many other podcasts, but what fascinates me most about David is not actually that story. It's his insatiable curiosity, his willingness to question conventional wisdom, and his raw authenticity. It all comes through in one of my favorite conversations in the history of the pod. When you posted that thing about the laundromat, I went back and uh, and, and read through all that stuff, and I was like, man, this guy, I, I got to follow this guy. That was, when yeah. I, that was when I got interested. I was like, but, you know, you've, so, but you've got to have that. I think you owe it to your clients and your industry to have a curiosity, right? I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, let's take the laundromat thing for instance, right? I was deployed down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and I had time on my hands. And so, like, I think about the next five years, the next 10 years, and I'm like, you know, in order to create wealth, I need to have equity. Which businesses can provide me equity, but low uh, sort of overhead and uh, low sort of involvement with myself. And I just wrote down a list and I went down that list and I explored all of them. Laundromats. I explored like vending machines and this and that and, and real estate car wash. and More car yeah. washes. Like I literally went through and wrote down the pros and cons and I went through and I learned how to value them and what this, how to scale them and all this. And I read everything I could. And so I was just like, you know, this is a possibility. Right. And I, I do that with everything. I go read as much as I can, learn as much as I can. And I start from square one. Okay, what is a laundromat? What is the best type of scenario to put a laundromat in? Or like for me, like I was thinking about urgent cares, right? Like I went and learned the urgent care business for a long time ago. I was like, well, these are the, the dynamics of an urgent care. What locations do you want? Things like that. And that's just how I operate, right? But people... They, they assume that in any room they walk in that they're the smartest. I don't. I always assume I'm not the smartest person in the room. So I ask questions. In fact, David's story and mindset are so powerful. He even had me sharing elements of my past, unplanned, on the podcast. I just think about all the money that I spent giving away that all could have been saved or invested. Now, granted, it, did it help my mom? Yeah, it helped her. So, like, I'm not upset about that. But yeah, I felt that absolute obligation. I Heck, my own mom didn't even come to my graduation from the Naval Academy because there was an expectation of me to pay for my family members to come out and fly to the Naval Academy for my graduation. I'm a broke college student. How the hell am I supposed to pay for that? Right? Yeah. And so I didn't have my mom there. Well, I remember when I was when I was growing up, there was a the Dallas Times Herald had this uh, really prestigious award for uh, high school students in in the Dallas area. It was the the newspaper, and uh, David, it was really funny because I'd gone through and I filled out all the paperwork and I'd done all the 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 legwork and I I had no expectation of winning by any stretch of the imagination. I just I was happy that they invited me to, to come up and, you know, I get there and it's, it's in the market hall arena. Uh, my mom didn't feel like she had an outfit that she felt comfortable wearing. So she didn't show up. You know, my grandmother didn't show up. Nobody was there for me. Right. And I didn't, understand what it was like to even go to an award ceremony. I'd never been to one. I mean, so literally I'm, I'm walking in with sweats and, a, you know, sweat bottoms on and sweat tops on and I'm sitting next to all these people and it, it dawns on me that I am really a fish out of water here. Everybody else is, you know, got a suit and tie and a dress and their family's there. And I ended up winning. Oh, wow. And 
it was the most awesome, horrifying thing uh, I can ever remember because I felt this initial, you know, just sheer gratitude of accomplishment that, you know, here I am amongst 3,000 people and somehow I won. I mean, no, you know, no outside influence. I didn't know any senators. I didn't know any congressmen. For whatever reason, however it shook out, I won. And and so I was just shocked, number one, and, and really happy. And then I remember getting on the stage and realizing you know, there was nobody else there to see it. And, and I think people, when they when they come from different backgrounds, a lot of ca- in a lot of in a lot of cases, it wasn't that my mom did that on purpose to me. I mean, she was a very loving person. Uh, she just didn't get it. She just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know. And whether you don't understand or whether you're maybe not, maybe you're not healthy enough to even participate. I know your mom had some, some health issues, you know, throughout your childhood. And, and my mom did toward the later, latter portion of my uh, childhood. But I I think before it was really just when you're, when you're kind of charting that new ground. And I, I talk to people all the time, when you're the first person to go to college or you're the the first person to do something you can't expect to get that mentorship from the people in your household. And then there's Stephanie Bogan. Stephanie's episode remains our single most listened to podcast. I've even gone back and listened and re-listened myself. It's hard to pick a particular section of the podcast that's most relevant. She talks about her struggles and challenges, how even success by traditional definitions left her feeling less than successful and how the realization that mindset was the key helped her improve not only her own personal life and fulfillment, but she was able to take that to the industry as a whole to improve others. Here are just a couple samples from Stephanie's time with us. But if you want a single pod that represents the Voice from the Hills origin story and mission, this is probably the one. What aspects of your upbringing, though, ended up being invaluable to you? And what aspects and skills mm. did you find that you were missing that you had to focus and, and put your attention on? That's a, no one's ever asked me that. And people ask me about that story all the time. It's a really insightful question. One, um, I do believe that our biggest blessings come wrapped in sandpaper. At the time, the, they all felt like sandpaper. Like this, you know, like there are people who've had far worse situations, but mine wasn't awesome. Um, And everything I hated about that experience, everything I hated about it is part of what makes me and, and who I am today. I am tenacious. I am driven. I am independent. I am create, you know, I'm a good communicator, like all of, you know, if you have to learn how to talk to crazy and I say that in a funny way, because it's my coping strategy, but if you have to learn how to talk to crazy to get anything you want, you get really good at people and behavior. Like I didn't realize like, why do I have this skill? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I know why I have this skill set. Like I had to master the nuance of human behavior, communication, like reason, rational. And I'm not even saying I'm awesome at it, but that was the environment I grew up. And I used to ask my mom to leave the house and she would look me in the eyeballs and say, no, I don't want to be alone. Wow. Okay. You know, it's one thing starting your behavioral training at, you know, the age of 26 at the University of Chicago. No, but starting at the age of nine at the kitchen table, that's a different, it's entirely all together. Right. Yeah. And I think to your point, like what didn't I get, I got, I didn't get all the stuff that you really need to be happy and wholehearted. I didn't get love acceptance and belonging in the way that children need them to feel safe and secure. It's not my parents fault. I've made peace with it. They had their own burdens, but my mother was literally mental ill. She would wake me up at two o'clock in the morning find a piece of lint on the carpet and then have me clean the whole house. Those were the good days. I'm not saying there weren't some normal ish day. Obviously not every day was tragic, but lots of them were right. I moved my dad was in the military until I was nine. So I think I moved, you know, like nine times up to that point. And then from the time that she got sick to when I graduated, I'd moved like another nine times. That's not stability. You don't get that sense of stability in a hostile environment that's always changing where people aren't or being the opposite of loving, accepting and belonging. And so I think to your point, what I didn't get was that emotional skill set of how to manage my feelings, how to even be aware that they were running the show. Right. What were those reactions? What I mean, if you looked if I look back at myself at who I was at 20 
and how I showed up and how I responded compared to who I am and how I show up today, they're wildly, wildly different people. I had this moment, James, where I just thought I've had so much shit happen in my life that isn't good. I think I would just like the next 50 years to be filled with stuff that's a whole lot better. I think I deserve that. So I hit the beach in Costa Rica where I just wanted to be a nobody for a while. I didn't want anyone to have, I wanted no obligations, no expectations. I literally woke up every day, let the sun hit my face, but you know, I put my feet in the sand. And one day I'm, re- I'm sitting on the beach. I do what everybody does when they retire and don't need to work anymore, James. I Googled, no joke, how to be successful and happy. Google does have the answer to everything. Yeah. So that led to, no joke, that's how you know it's desperate when you know everything you know and you're still Googling how to be happy on Google. <laughs> read an article that led to an article, I love research, right? I'm a closet geek, to an article, to a white paper, to a research paper, to a study by Carnegie Institute. This is the game-changing moment. I will never forget it. I'm sitting on the beach in my little chair in front of the house. I've got this study from Carnegie Institute called Education and Engineering. It was published in 1906. And it's really about in education, like how do we, how do we create learning and change and growth, right? Like that's what we're all doing all day, every day, learning and growing. So they did this study and they found that there were three contributing factors to success. One, environment, right? New York is different than California is different than Dubai. BD is different than an RAA. Kansas is a little bit different than New York City environment skills we have them or we can acquire them pretty straightforward mindset or psychology okay right i've read all the books check that box fine so we've got this pie chart we've got we've got environment (laughs) we've got skills and we've got mindset mindset. and of course most people are gonna they're gonna pair that pie chart into thirds yep but that's not really how that pie chart works is it no no, in fact, I read the next line in this was literally the moment that changed my life. It's why I'm here. It's why I've done every single thing since. No joke. The next line is, of those three contributing factors, your success, your ability to improve your situation, change and grow is determined 80, 80% by your mindset. And so there you have it. All the episodes of A Voice from the Hills essentially address a fundamental question. How can we embrace our challenges? How can we incorporate advancements and new ideas, knowing all the while that change is really, really hard? Our guests on the pod are exceptional people who've overcome challenge, embraced new opportunity. They've taken risk when they didn't have to. They've stared down the abyss of failure only to rise up by the bootstraps of their skill, determination, and mindset. And when they did rise up, they left a handout and a roadmap for others to follow. So there you have it the Voice from the Hills origin story. We invite you to follow A Voice from the Hills on social media, follow our show on your favorite podcast platform, and special thanks to all of our guests, past, present, and future. We couldn't do this without you. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening and engaging with us, because we can only do our best work when you are here to listen.